Good morning. We're in Exodus chapter 23 today. That's um, page number 63 in your pew Bible. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your own Bible or just grab that black pew Bible. While you get there, um, I want to tell you, to begin, if you didn't know, some of you have been there, been here, um, but I live in a really old farmhouse. Um, And so, I mean, old houses have their quirks, right? But uh, when we started doing renovations on the house, it's so old, I found square nails that were made by a blacksmith in the wall. Um, and it's log cabin. It was, I, as I peeled back layers, we found original rough-hewn log, big logs. I don't know how they even got them in place, really. Um, it's so old that I took those nails to the Abraham Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois, um, to find out how old they were. And the historian that was there, his best guess, uh, based upon uh, common building materials through the decades and so forth that were used, uh, he said he thought it was about 1870s is where the oldest portion of our home was construction. Portions of that house, this is the real point, portions of that house sit on a brick foundation, okay, an old, the old red brick foundation. The soil south of Wadesville is pretty hard clay. And then they packed a firm bedrock layer or strip to start that brick foundation on, and they laid red brick foundation on top of that. Why am I telling you all this? Because I am a, I'm very much a visualization guy. I, I, and when I hear words, I immediately start trying to find things that it's like, that a concept is like. And so I look around and I, I just see metaphors, and that helps me to understand the world that God created. And when I read Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, the law of the Lord, it reminds me of that brick foundation. We have a firm ground of the Shema, the, the, the love your Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that is the, the very bottom, it's what's underneath the whole thing. Holding it up. When asked what the greatest commandment was, that was Jesus' answer, was those two things. Upon all these hang all the law and the prophets, he said. This is the core truth of why we were created and how we are to fulfill our purpose as human beings in this life, is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Then in Exodus 20, the Lord builds upon that solid ground the fortifying footer of the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. They are an expansion upon the Shema. Further elaboration, so to speak. It's more specific about what God wants and what is best for us and how we're made and how to obey Him and how to follow in His ways. Then you get into Exodus chapter 21, verse 23, which is where we've been the last few times in Exodus. And upon the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, the footer, God gets even more specific. And they are like these individual bricks where the Lord is really spelling out exactly how it is that the people of God can love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and how they can love each other. It's been a very blessed journey for me to slow down and really look at these individual bricks in this foundation. 
Amen? If you've been apart through Exodus 20 through 23, it's helpful to slow down and look at those things because that's the beauty of expositional preaching. The spelling out of the law isn't flyover country because it is God further revealing himself and his nature to his people. These laws are totally against the grain of fallen human instinct and fleshliness. Where we want revenge, the law preaches restraint. Where we cast off, the law embraces and cares. Where we are negligent, the law becomes concerned. Where we would harshly enslave, the law preaches kind service to one another. In just chapters 21 and 22, we've dealt with the subjects of worship, slavery, murder and manslaughter, the death penalty, laws about bodily injuries, due penalty, appropriate penalty for the particular crime, theft, negligence, restitution, seduction, three significant societal capital crimes, how you go about caring for strangers or resident aliens, widows and orphans, lending to the needy, respect for rulers, and the giving of the first fruits in ceremonial consecration. And these are all these bricks that I'm talking about in this foundation that God is building. Really, I would say, if we're going to continue on with the metaphor, to the house that is truth. Absolute truth from God. <clears throat> there are two more bricks to examine today before we leave this section. And by God's grace and translation into English, with the addition of chapters and verses, they break up quite nicely into a section that elaborates on the ninth commandment, verses 1 through 9, which is the false witness commandment. That's a love your neighbor as yourself one, right? That belongs in that category. And then the fourth commandment, Sabbath, which is a love your God commandment, which is the first table of the law in verses 10 through 19. Then there's a section at the end that helps us, verses 20 through 33, that helps us to understand how the law relates to God's relationship with national Israel then and how he relates with us, his church, or Israel now. Okay, So and I didn't start off by reading this text because it is 33 verses long. So I'm going to read it and we're just going to flow through as we go section by section. So let's start at the very beginning, verse 1, chapter 23. It says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So verses 1 through 9, like I said, is an elaboration upon the ninth commandment, the commandment not to bear false witness. In the main, this set of laws or exhortation calls on the people of God, and especially on those who are in positions of influence and power, judges, for instance, to be truthful in their dealings 
in the settings of the courts, but it also exhorts us to kindness to those of whom might be our adversaries or our enemies, those who are opposed to us. We are not to show a sinful bias towards our neighbor, either for or against. We are not to show a sinful favoritism or partiality. You're going to hear that word a lot in the next couple minutes. Whether that is in the courts in the midst of a dispute or in our neighborly relations or especially those who are in places of leadership in the community are not to show sinful bias, favoritism, or partiality. God's people are to be concerned with the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Immediate quick application point. If you are called, should you be called for jury duty, as the son or daughter of the king of truth, you are the most qualified for that position. So if you are able, don't dodge it. It's a gospel opportunity. You can bring God's truth to bear on a judiciary process. If at all possible, go there and represent him well. Young ones in my midst, hear me. If you are so inclined to study the law of our land and bring God's truth to bear on it, that is the Lord's work and we support you. Lawyer jokes aside. I want to point out that in the Hebrew, if you look back to the text, where it says, you shall not fall in. You shall not fall in with the many. That's passive in nature. And bear witness, siding with the many, to pervert justice is active. So you have both passive and active of this idea of falling in with the many to do wrong. So essentially, no matter whether or you are leading the pack to do wrong, or you are just gaggling in and saying nothing to do wrong, if you are not impartially pursuing truth, you're wrong. You're not obeying God's truth, God's commandments. We don't side with the poor just because they are poor. We don't side with the rich just because they are rich. We don't side with women just because they are women. We don't side with men just because they are men. In our social media age where everyone seemingly has found their voice, for good or for ill, just because everyone else is taking a stand on an issue doesn't mean that you should be real quick to do so as well. God gave you a brain and the truth. Lay back. Watch, read, pray, think, and then if you are so inclined, speak truth from the truth. Not from the wisdom of the many, not from the court of public opinion and appeal. And if you find yourself in the midst of lies and liars, or maybe you're just not sure about what the truth is, don't go along. Plant your feet and with respect, represent your father. He has given us this beautiful little word. It is your truth cheat code. Are you ready? I'm going to give it to you. No. No. Why not? What's wrong with you? Who do you think you are? How dare you? I'm not sure that the Lord would approve. So no. Or, I'm very sure the Lord wouldn't approve. So no. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going along with it. 
The next section deals with justice with your adversaries. I doubt many of us might find someone's donkey or ox going astray much in Mount Vernon, although if you are from the northern part of the county, you may. There was literally a time when Amanda was driving to church and there was a cow in the middle of Springfield Road and we had to find out whose cow it was. We found out whose cow it was. It wasn't an adversary. Made it that much easier, right, to obey the commandment here. You're not laughing. That's funny, all right? It's funny to find a cow in the middle of Springfield Road. But the principle is this. We don't revel in the misfortune of even those who hate us. Karma is not Christian. We don't believe in that. That's not Christian doctrine. Those we have personality clashes with or adversarial relationships with, and it doesn't even have to be like, this person is my enemy. By nature of the fact that we are people living, breathing the same air, occupying the same space, we will eventually find ourselves Maybe even in the midst of God's people here, in an adversarial relationship with somebody. I want something, somebody else wants something else. We can't both have our way. That creates an adversarial nature to it. That's difficult. There's friction that comes from that. So how do we deal with a person we might have an adversarial relationship with? Very, very carefully. Very carefully. Let me speak, I speak to my, I'm speaking to myself and the people that have personalities like mine. You might find yourself with a person, some people are go along to get along and they're just pretty chill and laid back. I, that's not really me. And if that's not really you either, you have to be so careful. Number one, you've got to be careful not to create adversaries where there are no adversaries. And number two, you have to be careful that when you actually have a legitimate adversary, you don't sin. Because it's easier to do so. Those we have personality clashes with our adversary relationships, when we see bad happening to them and we have the power to help them in the flesh, what does your heart say? Serves them right. Serves them right. Karma. But anyone can love those who love them. Even the uncircumcised Canaanites do that. Even the pagans. This this section, of what it's telling us is it's calling us to a higher level regard, not just for those who love us, but for those that we find ourselves in an adversarial relationship with. Think about the imagery here, what's going on. You see your neighbor, you're, you're in ancient Middle Eastern Israel, and you see this guy who you've had property line disputes with out there with his ox stuck in a muddy hole, and you think to yourself, A, serves him right, or B, you put your muck boots on or your muck sandals, whatever you had at that time, and you go out there and you dig that ox out with him. That's the difference. Insert 21st century metaphors wherever you would like situations. Finally, the end of this section is the call for those in positions of authority to be careful in administering justice. The last few verses, don't take bribes. If you, if you find yourself in a position of authority, <clears throat> don't take bribes, obviously. But also, if you find yourself in a position of authority or power, be careful what you accept from anyone. 
contracts or jobs or favors or campaign contributions unless you are absolutely sure that there are no strings attached to your decisions that you're going to make in that authority role. Don't take them because what's it say? It blinds the eyes. It's like putting lenses on, cloudy lenses on where you're willing to, with absolute partiality, cloud what truth is and serve not truth Serve your own means, your own gains, what's best for you, versus serving the cause of justice and truth according to biblical and God-given wisdom. And then finally in verse 9, just because someone weak, that's the sojourner verse. This should be obvious to us, but the temptation is always there. Just because someone is weak and can't fight back, does not give us or anybody in authority the right to take from them or pervert justice against them for one's own gain. It's wrong. So to summarize, this is in large measure a call to biblical impartiality because the God we serve is impartial. God shows no partiality, the scripture says. There is no shadow of turning with thee. And Christians in the house today, aren't you glad that God is impartial? This is the foundation for the doctrine of unconditional election. He will save whom he will save. No respecter of social or economic or national status. So you, Christian, who worship the impartial God and call him Father... You who have benefited eternally from his impartiality, will you now be partial in your relationships? Surely not. Surely not. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for by the power, I'll insert this, for by the power of his impartial blood, ye are all one in Christ Jesus. God shows no partiality when it comes to salvation of sinners and therefore we as his people we cannot be partial and serve an impartial God next section is Exodus chapter 23 verses 10 through 19 it's the law about Sabbaths and festivals it says this excuse me for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield but the seventh year You shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and that what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let, excuse me, <clears throat> nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I have commanded you. You shall eat the unleavened bread for seven days and at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year you shall 
all your males appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits, first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So in this passage, we learn at least three things. In verses 10 through 12, we learn about the, the sabbatical cycle of the life in Israel. In verse 13, which is a strange little verse, <clears throat> we find a summarization and crystallization of the whole of the laws in the book of the covenant. Okay, it's, it's this nice little summary verse. And then verses 14 through 19, we gain instruction about these mandatory celebrations or these parties that Israel had to attend, that all the people had to attend. So let's take it, we'll take it on its parts. In order to promote obedience and loyalty to God, God wove himself into the weekly and yearly schedule of Israel. We've talked about this a little bit before when I preached in Exodus 19. God wove himself into the weekly and yearly schedule of Israel. In verses 10 through 12, we see God has inserted himself into the rhythms of life and how trusting God for provision and sustenance is woven into the yearly calendar of the people of Israel. We have a section that reflects the oldest sacred calendar in the scripture. It's based on the calendar of creation, which God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested. And one. Now, we also know that agriculturally speaking, you have this let the land lay fallow every six years, and the last one, they let it lay fallow. We know that agriculturally speaking, that's a good practice, especially when you don't have chemical fertilizers. But that's not the reason Israel is told to do it here. In fact, Israel is told to do it, look at verse 11, because of the benefit this will give to needy humans and to animals. What's the point? The point is that God is a provider that is concerned about the needy and even about the wild beasts of the field. You remember how often the Psalms celebrate the, this fact. They open their mouths and you give them food in its due season, the psalmist says. Jesus can say that he is concerned even for the birds and provision for them, and this fact is celebrated in the law in Exodus chapter 23, verse 11. God is the provider for all of his creatures. You may wonder, how do we get that from the law? If you look back at previous laws, just allow your eyes to just glance back up the page a little bit, even in the first section of this and beyond. How do we get from laws on treatment of the oppressed and widows and orphans and strangers to laws about seven-year Sabbaths and weekly Sabbaths? Understand the connection. The seven-year Sabbath has as part of its design the care of needy people. So God moves in verses 1 through 9 from laws about how we're to care for the needy through impartiality to a law about how he, was, how he is actually going to carry that out in his people, Israel. And that comes through them, comes through those very people. And in verse 12, we see that God's work and rest in creation is the paradigm for man's work and rest each week. Israel's fundamental calendar is not based on astronomical movements or stars or even seasons. Ultimately, 
There is a correlation between the feasts and the rhythms and the agricultural life that is not astronomically or seasonally based whatsoever. It is sabbatically based. The rhythm of their life is the Sabbath rhythm. One out of every seven days, one out of every seven years. And then there's feasts. There's these festivals they gather for. And even in that seven-day cycle, Israel is pressed to trust in God. And because that this law is not based, this is not actually new information to Israel. Because God created the heavens and the earth. Six days work, one day rest. This has been pressed from the very beginning. Because of that, because this is principally rooted in creation and in the character of God himself, I have become convinced that Sabbath rest on the Lord's day is a fundamental part not only of Israel nation's calendar, but of the calendar of Israel that is the Christian church. If you walk into Barnes and Noble, I mean, who goes to Barnes and Noble anymore? But if you were to walk into Barnes and Noble and go to the self-help section, you will find title upon title upon title dealing with subjects like work-life balance and how to find rest in a chaotic life or how to defeat manic behavior. Our very nature, as we are made in God's image, cries out for two things. First, it cries out for productivity, for work. That's why when we all locked down for weeks during COVID, suicide rates went Because when you put people in confines and you say, don't be productive, at first we're like, great, this is going to be awesome. And it wasn't. Because we're not made that way. We want to produce We want to make, we want to create. And the second thing, productivity is the first, our very nature has made in God's image, productivity, and then real, deep, physical, mental, and spiritual rest. If we don't do productive value-added work, we will become depressed. If we don't rest, we will burn out. You who worship the God of productivity and also self-proclaimed Lord of the Sabbath, you who worship that God, will you do it better than him? Can you write a better book on work-life balance than the Lord Jesus Christ himself? No, you cannot. I don't think so. Now, this brick... may feel more like a brick, less like a brick in a foundation and more like a brick that gets thrown at you. The first brick we examine today impacts, mostly it's an internal battle that we have with our flesh, dealing with partiality towards others and so forth. And then it manifests itself and plays out how we treat others. This brick of Sabbath keeping, it impacts the family calendar And it smacks up against a culture that has largely lost touch with the Lord's Day as an important concept. There is no need for me to prance around it. If you get convictional about keeping the Lord's Day holy, 
you will lose opportunities. Your kids might not get the spot on the team, or you'll have to find another team or studio or program. They may, you may give up some time and a half, for sure. And some of you just checked out on me, and you say, easy for you to say, Pastor, you have to be here on the Lord's Day. And I'll cede that point. I'll cede the point to you. And I will also, I will cede your point, and I will also raise you this fact. I will confess to being one of the worst Sabbath breakers in this room. As one of the facilitators of the Lord's Day worship, many times, many times in my life, I have worked seven days a week for months on end until I get sick, depressed, overly impatient with my wife and my children. I begin to lack concern for the very sheep that God has entrusted to my care. Love leaves my heart. So this is not, this is not a flat issue. Things happen. Kids get sick. I just heard from Patrick Moore pray for Madeline. She had to have an MRI on a vertebrae this morning. And the only time they could get her in for an MRI was Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Things happen. Stuff comes up. You're on call. I think there is much grace from the Lord. And I think we should have much grace with each other as we move towards greater love and appreciation for the Lord's Day Sabbath. But this is the question. Principially, are you making an effort to orient your household and schedule in such a way that prioritizes gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day, most importantly, and pushing pause on whatever work is for you so that you can take the Lord's Day and truly, deeply, spiritually, mentally, physically rest. God's word is not calling us to this holy day of rest so that we can be pretentious about it. So that you can feel better some way. He's calling his people to this because it's what's good for us. In fact, that's what his law is all about. It's what's good for us. He knows what you need. He is Lord over all the provision in your life. And if you work hard six days and rest one, He will provide. He will provide. He provided for His people Israel in the Old Testament, and He will provide for you, for us. It may not be what we want. But it'll be what we need. And I would, I would love to, to continue on and just di- keep diving deep into this I, and, and read. And we should. We're going, we're going to read books and talk about Sabbath as a principle and debate things back and forth. And I'd love to dive deep into each one of these three festivals with you. There is a whole lot of richness in there, and you should study them. 
But I, I, we don't, I don't have time to get into that. So I want to summarize these three festivals by saying they were special times of feasting and celebration where the people of God remembered and celebrated their redemption. They celebrated God's faithfulness to them, and he, they celebrated his sustaining provision for them. They would do the rhythm of the Sabbath in their good times. They would do the rhythm of the Sabbath, and then they would stop to have a festival to celebrate the fact that God had kept his promise to them to provide for them even though they only worked six days a week, and only, even though they only farmed six years out of seven. Four stipulations about each of these feasts I want to point out to you. Number one is in verse 15, and then three are in verses 17 through 19. At the end of verse 15, we read, And none shall, be, excuse me, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. That's a stipulation for all the feasts. To come with an offering, without an offering, is to despise God's providence. Remember, these festivals are all about gratitude for what God has done for them. So they're to bring something with them as an offering to the Lord to tell him thank you and to, and to worship him with. He says, so don't come before me empty-handed. God says, there's your directive. To come to me in these feasts, don't come empty-handed because I have not left you empty-handed. Don't come to me empty-handed because I have not left you empty-handed, is what he's saying. Secondly, in verse 17, three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. Verse 17. We know that from Deuteronomy and later that not just males were at these festivals. These weren't guy-only festivals. Wives and women and children and infants, they all came to these festivals. But notice the emphasis. Three times a year all your males shall appear before me. As far as God is concerned, heads of families have special responsibility in the propagation of spiritual life in Israel. And so it's emphasized. The heads of family, the males, the men of fighting age, so to speak, 20 years old and older. They were the ones who have household responsibility and governance, and they are to be here, all of them, three times a year, appearing before me. And thirdly, Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with, le- un- excuse me, with leavened bread. <clears throat> Remember the laws, think back to uh, Exodus 10 through 12, and the laws about pa- the feast of Passover, because leaven was a symbol of corruption, and worship with leaven in the house was worship to worship with corruption. And so, as it was symbolic of corruption, they were to root that out before coming to the Lord their God. And then that, the final strange stipulation, it's verse 19. You are not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That is, isn't that, this seems kind of strange, kind of out of place. What's up with that? Who would do such a cruel thing? Who would, who would, well, the Canaanites would do that. That's what they did. That was a part of one of their, for, their fertility rituals in the worship of their false gods. And so what's God saying to Israel? Don't act like the Canaanites in worship. Worship me, Sabbath, Sabbath, right? We have the Sabbath concepts. Here's the festivals. And oh yeah, by the way, don't don't try to bring Canaanite practices into the worship of the Lord your God. Don't get your ideas of how to worship me from them. You get your ideas from me, the Lord is saying. You, you can't look at the Canaanites and say, you know, that would be a really cool thing to do. No, you worship the Lord the way that he has said that you are to worship 
the Lord. And this is a great verse supporting what we know as the regulative principle. So write that down if you're a note taker. Regulative principle of worship. That being defined that we shouldn't conduct worship of the Lord in any old way we feel like or what we might think is cool. We are constrained by the scriptures to know how to worship the Lord when we gather together. That's called the regulative principle. What do we learn from all this? We learn that we must worship with gratitude. Don't come to the Lord with empty hands. Worship with gratitude to the one who has given you every good gift. We learn that men, as head of households, are responsible for ordering the calendar of their household in a way that honors the Lord. Men are responsible for the calendar, how the time of their family is spent, and they are responsible to order that calendar in such a way that it points to the Lord their God. Not that husbands have to keep the calendar day to day. That might be, your wife might be far more equipped, knowing some of you very intimately, definitely your wife's probably far more equipped to keep the day-to-day calendar. But, in doing so, she must know that God has prime of place in that calendar. Why? Because you've told her so. You've helped her to understand so. Fathers, you have the biblical right and responsibility to say to your household, especially in matters of worship, I don't care if you want to come. You're coming. It's your right, given so by the word of God and your responsibility to do so. Because you will give an account. You're responsible for how you orient your household. And wives, if your husband is trying to do that, even if he's trying to do it imperfectly, praise the Lord for that man and don't resist him. Joyfully join with him. Hold him accountable. Encourage him. And rejoice together in the great God who has provided for you so richly. And one more very quick application point before we leave this this festival Sabbath thinking. As Reformed Protestant Baptist people in 21st century America, I think I'm on pretty solid footing to say this. Christmas and Easter are ours. They're our festivals. Let's not let the world tell us how to celebrate our festivals. If I could be so bold to you parents and grandparents today and liberate you, make as much of these two festivals as you possibly can. I'm not telling you to sin by going into debt or acting foolishly, but within biblical wisdom and with all that you have to muster, make a big deal about our God made flesh at Christmas time. Make a big deal out of it. Take the whole month. It's Advent. Live it up with your kids, your grandkids. Your neighbors. Make a big deal out of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ during Easter season. Because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. If 
If it can't be said that there's any difference between our celebration and the celebration of the world, that's not the world's fault. We can't say, well, they they took it from us, blah, blah, blah. No, we're the ones. It's our festival. It's our truth. It's our Savior. Blow it up. Make it exciting. Have fun. Make it a big deal in your own ways. Don't resent or play comparison games between household Preach the gospel through our festivals, and let's work together twice a year to make it a big deal at Mount Vernon Baptist Church. There's nothing pious. Some of you need to hear this. There's nothing pious about fasting during feasting. Feast. Enjoy. Enjoy the fat of what God has given us. Celebrate Christ. Make it fun within your budget. Give good gifts Make it joyous and tell your kids and the watching world exactly what it is that you're excited about. A Savior that was born to die but didn't stay dead. Amen? Last section of Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. The conquest of Canaan promised. Behold, I have sent an angel before you to guard on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. I'll pause here and just remind you. Do you remember how God's people were treated by the Amalekites last time? Remember that? The Amalekites, they were coming in, how, how they attacked them. And the rear were the weak and sickly. And don't, don't get caught up in some, some thought process that the Old Testament, you know, you, you hear this thrown out there a lot. Oh, this Old Testament God, boy, he's just ferocious and crazy. No, the, the Old Testament God is the New Testament God, and that God cares about justice and truth and righteousness. And that's, about what's, that's, that's what's about to be carried out against all the ites. Because they're wicked. Here it says, Picking up, you shall serve. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. 
First, if you look at verses 20 through 23, you'll see God's promise and provision of his angel to guide and bring Israel into the land of promise. Here's, here's the most important point of what's going on. God will finish what he starts. God doesn't start a project and then forget about it. He doesn't start a project and leave it undone. He will finish what he starts, but he expects obedience from his people. In verse 20, God reiterates his commitment to Israel by assuring them of his supernatural intervention on their part. He says, I'm going to send an angel to guard you along the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. And he's promising to bring his people into the place which he has prepared for them ever since he called Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldees. Ever since Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he's been promising to bring his people into the place which he has prepared for them. And if you've been with us through Exodus, you might remember this angel, this mysterious figure. He's been popping up several times. The first time in the book of Exodus is in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, where the angel of the Lord appears to Moses himself in the blazing fire in the midst of what? The bush, the burning bush. The next time that angel shows up is in Exodus chapter 14, verses 19, as the pilgrimage across the wilderness begins and God says, the angel of God who has been going before the camp moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved or excuse me, from before them and stood behind them. So it's not just the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire guiding Israel by day and by night. It's the actual angel of God is there with them as well. And that angel's presence is reiterated in Exodus 23, not once but twice in verse 20 and again in verse 23. And in verse 20, he's called an angel, but in verse 23, he's called my angel. My angel will go before you and bring you into the land. And this isn't the last time in the book of Exodus that this angel will appear. Significantly, the angel will reappear in Exodus 32 and 33. In Exodus 32, through 30, verse 34, we will read, Behold, my angel shall go before you. In Exodus 33, verse 2, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite. The point I'm making with all this angel talk is that God had supernaturally been guiding his people up until now, and he is reminding them again of that and saying, I'm going to complete the task for which I promised to you, and I'm going to bring you into the land, and I'm going to do it by my angel, this supernatural presence of God. This angel is an extension of God's very own presence amongst his people. And the New Testament writers are not hesitant at all to identify the angel of the Lord in Exodus with the pre-incarnate manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is this, God is in their midst. I am with you, he is saying. Emmanuel. I'm going to complete the project. That's God's end of the bargain. He's going to hold up his end of the covenant. The people of God have a part to play as well in this covenant. Their part is obedience and loyalty to God. That's spelled out in these verses. They would love that they would love what? The Lord their God with all their hearts, and souls, and minds strength, and that they would love their neighbor as them 
themselves. They would not take the name of the Canaanite gods even on their lips. Don't even say it and not make any covenants with these people lest they be corrupted and turn away from the God who has delivered them. Then he will prosper them in this land that is flowing with milk and with honey. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me. Sounds pretty good. I'm sure they're saying to themselves, this sounds great. We can do this. Three festivals a year. Love my neighbor as myself. Got it. But we know that even though God had every intention of holding up his end of the covenant, he also knew they would never be able to hold up to their end. Never. So why did he do this? Why did he go to all this trouble with this honorary people that would not obey him? would not be loyal to him. Because out of Egypt, I call my son. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Ethnic Israel is the son that cannot do it. They cannot accomplish righteousness on their own. They cannot keep the law. They cannot uphold their end of the covenant. The law does not make them righteous. It can only show them just how much they truly can't be righteous. But through this son who cannot will come the son who can. Out of Egypt, I call my son. And before I put the gospel ribbon on this sermon, let me say something about this land flowing with milk and honey. These are what we call the Deuteronomical blessings of God. The blessings that flow in this life because God, based in his own character, has revealed to us principally in the law what is best for us. And so when we do what is best for us, spoiler alert, there are blessings in the here and now that flow out from that. Ask any former addict or any former sexually promiscuous person who has repented and obeyed God and followed his commandments along those lines if there are not real physical, material, spiritual, mental blessings that come along with obedience to the Lord their God. We should not in some overly pietistic way shun or be embarrassed about the blessings that flow to us from obedience to the Lord. We praise God for those blessings. And we, like Job, say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is not sin to be blessed by God. Not at all. But we are not prosperity gospel preachers. It's not a one-on-one correlation, evidently. I'm not saying... Make sure you put your tithe checks in because you'll get twice as much out. Guaranteed. Not going to happen. Right? Maybe. Don't know. Depends on the Lord's will. I obey. I keep my hands open. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But also... Simultaneous to those Deuteronomical blessings, 
there are still miscarriages. And there is sickness and sorrow and pain and death. So what gives? If God doesn't make promises and not fulfill them, and the promise is not yet fulfilled because we're still experiencing suffering, then all that we can conclude is that he isn't finished yet. Physical Israel must be pointing to a greater reality. That reality is that physical Israel was not capable of loving the Lord their God with all their hearts and souls and would not love their neighbor as themselves. But where they failed, the Israel of God, the firstborn son, the true Israel that always has been and always will be, the Lord Jesus would do it flawlessly. Unless we read this law, this, this Exodus 20 through 23, and like the rich young ruler in Mark 10, sit atop our high horse thinking to ourselves, I have done all these things. And looking down our noses and taking these bricks of the law and using them to throw at those dirty, uncircumcised Canaanites out there, I say unto you, but for the grace of God, that is you. That's you. You were not Israel. You were the Canaanites. I was an uncircumcised Canaanite, a pagan, who deserved to be driven out and eradicated for rebellion against the one true God. And Israel has come to us, and he himself was crushed and put out on our behalf that we might have the right to be called sons of God. Who will deliver us from our flesh? Who will deliver us from our sin? None but Christ. Praise be to God. And praise be to God, he isn't done yet. One day, one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will drive out, he will drive out all wickedness and will entirely fulfill even the land promises. Every square inch of this physical universe and every heart and tongue will completely recognize the lordship of Christ and there will be no more mourning or death or sorrow and we will all say this as his church says now, hail the one true king of Jerusalem and glory to his name forever. The name that is above every name, say it with me, Jesus. Jesus. And I say to you, Christian, having called him king, will you now read his kingly edicts in Exodus chapter 20, verse 23, and honestly have the audacity to say, this does not apply to me. Surely not. Surely not. It surely does. It cannot save you. Only Jesus does that. But it sure can bless you and make you more like him. And if you have not taken Christ as your king, hear me this morning. 
You must be born again. You can't gain eternal life on your own any more than the people of Israel could gain it through any of their efforts, any of their righteousness. He must adopt you into his people through your repentance of sin and crowning him Lord of all. I'd like to especially press this point this morning to the young men and young ladies in the room. My children, who are looking at something over there, Samuel, Evelyn, my children, look at me. Young people, there's a lot of them here. There's a few back there. Focus in on me right now. I've got something to say to you before we end. Young and nearly grown, hear me out. My confession, your parents' confession, is not your confession. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And as it says in Romans 2, the Lord will circumcise your heart and adopt you into eternal Israel. And I think I can speak for all the parents and the grandparents in the house as much as we wish that you could ride our coattails into the eternal promised land. That's not what the Bible says. You must. You must be born again. Teenager, young adult, lifelong unbeliever, you must, you must be born again. The Lord must act upon you. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So call upon his name. Have a conversation. Go home. If this is stirring you, especially you young people I was talking to, if this is stirring you, if this is stirring your heart, go home and talk to your dad. Go home and talk to your mom. Have a conversation with them about Jesus. Let them guide you towards the only Savior. The only Savior. Let's pray.